Acts. Acts chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 12 through 26. This is our second sermon in our new series in the book of Acts. And last week, I said that while most ancient manuscripts of the Bible title this book something like Acts of the Apostles, the oldest manuscripts title it, this is again my new favorite title, The Things That Are Begun With God. And then from that title, I tried to draw out from last week's passage that while there are some important differences, like miraculous powers and the offices of apostle, which we're going to talk about a little bit this morning, the kinds of things that we see Jesus doing with his people in Acts are the kinds of things that he's doing with us today. Specifically, he is calling us to make mature disciples who go and tell the world about Jesus and who live together in such a way that the world can come and see the power of Jesus in our lives. So we go and tell so that the world can come and see how and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In the next chapter is Peter's very famous Pentecost sermon. We'll start looking at that next week. This is when Peter and the apostles go and tell the people in Jerusalem about Jesus. And it's this huge event. Over 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus after one sermon. And it's, it's such a huge event, we can, and I have, uh, raced past our passage in chapter 1 because the results of Peter's sermon are just so exciting. Uh, it's an incredibly important if, moment in church history. It's big. It's bold. Uh, we Americans love big, bold things. And also, we Americans love things that are quantifiable, right? You can see it clearly. You can count the results over 3,000 people. And it's the kind of thing that you can take to people and you can say, hey, you should look at this. This is a big number. It's a huge event. You should pay attention to this. And uh, what we see after Peter's sermon is what we want for our church. I hope we would all love the problem of hundreds or thousands of people confessing faith in Jesus because of our ministry. Like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be amazing? Um, it would be amazing. But only, only if we have the kind of culture and community of faith that we see here in our passage this morning. Because again, the things that we begin with God today, the work of evangelism today is aimed at making mature disciples. And the reality is, if people are saved into an unhealthy church with unhealthy leadership, they will remain unhealthy. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about recently over the last couple of months, Jesus's powerful condemnation of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said to the Pharisees, you will travel the whole earth to make one convert to the God of the Bible. And that's not a bad thing, right? That's evangelism. But then Jesus says, woe to you, because you teach them to live such cold-hearted, loveless, judgmental, graceless lives that your convert lives more like a child of hell than a child of heaven. They actually end up in a worse position than when they started because they act less like God, they speak less like God, they have an emotional and mental life less like God's than when they began, while now living under the false and self-righteous idea that they are actually representing the God of the Bible well. Woe to you. Jesus says, uh, I don't know about you. I don't want Jesus to woe us. Uh, I want Jesus to bless us. 
This is why our passage is so, is so important. It shows what kind of church culture is needed to take 3,000 new disciples in in a healthy way and help mature them so that they can go out and make new mature disciples. And, as we'll talk about it, it shows the kind of leadership that is necessary to build, to continue, and to preserve that culture of blessing, of maturity. Uh, my friends, if we are going to be a church where people can not only hear about Jesus, but be drawn into a life with him that is blessed, heavenly, characterized by spiritual maturity, there's some things here that we need to reflect on. And so let's do that. First, I'll read the passage, and then after praying, uh, we'll move through it, looking first at uh, continuing a spiritually healthy culture, uh, or I, I could say practicing what Jesus uh what Jesus taught. Second, preserving a spiritually healthy culture. And then finally, I'm going to end with just a few reflections on building a spiritually healthy culture here. And this is going to be, again, like I said in the first sermon, just a constant theme throughout our series. Uh, so let's, let's read Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 12 to the end of the chapter. And uh, then we'll, uh, we'll start our reflection this morning. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. This is immediately following the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Let's hear the word of God. Uh, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room while they, where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And he became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one dwell in it, and let another take his office. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. It is wisdom, it is your power which uh, 
brings dead bones to life and puts flesh on them and brings a deeper communion with you and a growing uh, faith. But Lord, we know that it only does this as your Holy Spirit blesses it to us, as he works it down into our hearts and uh, gives us life through it. And so, Father, we therefore pray that your Holy Spirit would now, as we reflect on your word, give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it, as well as the humility without which no one can understand your truth. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear, receive, and respond to your word this morning be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as we think first about continuing a spiritually healthy culture, our passage starts out just after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And kids, remember, ascend means go up. So it's just after Jesus went up into heaven. It's hidden by a cloud. And now we're told in verse 12, that the apostles had a seven-day walk back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples what had happened. That's verse 12. Uh, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, a Sabbath day journey away. And a Sabbath day journey means one week, so that's seven days. Now, that must have been some walk, right? Seven days is a lot of time for reflection. It's a lot of time for discussion. It's a lot of time for planning. Uh, a week's walk is a lot of time to process Jesus' word that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But before that mission started, they needed to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit gave them the power to begin. Uh, so what was the result of that reflection? When they get back to Jerusalem after seven days of walking, what did the apostles do? They gather with the other disciples, about 120, and then out of that group, they gather very specifically with, verse 14, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. And they, with one accord, devote themselves to prayer. All of that time to think and plan and dream, and the first thing they do, and the thing they keep doing for weeks is devote themselves to prayer. And that word for devote means faithfully regular. It's what you use to describe when you set times to meet. So they set times to meet and pray. And when those times came each day, maybe multiple times each day, they got together and they prayed faithfully and regularly together. Uh, why did they do this? And why do they do that with these specific people? After all, these are the apostles, right? These are the leaders. And what we expect of our leaders, especially in our cultural context, is action. We need visions cast. We need plans written. Budgets need to be produced. Systems need to be created. We need a five-year plan, <laughs> right? Uh, now, I'm not against all of those things. I don't think Jesus is against them either. In fact, I think those things are important in their place. But the things that we connect intrinsically with leadership are clearly not the things the apostles connected intrinsically with leadership, nor are they the foundational elements of the church or the culture that Jesus built into the church before he ascended into heaven. And I submit to you the reason why the apostles, when they got back after a week of talking and discussing and thinking, devoted themselves to prayer is because they were intentionally continuing the ministry culture that Jesus gave them as his disciples. And at the center of that culture was prayer. 
So if you think about Jesus' life himself in the Gospels, before his ministry even officially begins in Luke's Gospel at the beginning, as a boy, Jesus wants more than anything to be in his father's house, which we know for Jesus meant primarily being in a place of prayer, a place where he can commune with his heavenly father. And then when Jesus begins his ministry, he's led out into wilderness for 40 days where he spends his time not vision casting, not planning, but in fasting and in prayer, in communion with his father, so that when Satan comes to tempt him, Jesus has such a deep connection with his father that Satan cannot sow distrust into their relationship or offer Jesus anything as good as the blessings that are found in deep abiding communion with his heavenly father. And then throughout Jesus's ministry, and we looked about at this a little bit at the beginning of the year, whether he's preparing to preach after he preaches or when he's waiting to start the next event of his ministry, Jesus goes off alone and he prays. Uh, but not only does he go off alone, he also gathers 12 of his disciples or the three kind of leaders of that 12, Peter, James, and John, to go pray with him. So my point is, for Jesus, whether you're waiting for the Father to lead you into ministry, as the apostles are doing at this point in their lives, or whether you're actively engaged in ministry, as we all are here at Grace, or if you're recovering from one ministry as you transition into another one, uh, intentional, regular communion with the triune God in prayer is the foundational practice of a spiritually healthy church culture. The apostles are continuing the ministry culture they received from Jesus during his three to four years of earthly ministry and during his 40 days of instruction before his ascension, which is whether you're waiting or working, spend regular, intentional time in prayer with God. These leaders of the church devoted themselves to communion with God, and then they also noticed, did this in such a way that they drew the rest of the church, the rest of the disciples, into their practice of regular prayer so that communion with Jesus was now woven into the very fabric of the church's life together, which what we would call culture, right? Speaking of leaders, why does Luke mention that the apostles were gathered with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, which just means Mary's other children, Jesus' younger brothers and sisters? The answer, I believe, is because while these were not ordained formal leaders within the church, they weren't apostles, they weren't elders, they weren't deacons, they were still informal leaders. People looked to them for wisdom and guidance and discipleship in the ways of Jesus. Just like in a normal church, you have a pastor, you have your elders, you have your deacons who you look to for guidance and discipleship, and you have others in the congregation who, while not ordained leaders, are still leaders. They are people who are known for their godliness, who are known for their wisdom, their insight, their nearness to Jesus. I think what we see here is the apostles recognizing that if uh, we're going to succeed in this ministry Jesus has given us as a church, then we need everyone embracing the culture of ministry that Jesus has passed on to all of us, especially this foundational practice of regular, consistent, communal, and private prayer. And so they gather together 
with these with the formal leaders, with the informal leaders, so that this culture can continue in the church, so it can mature as a practice in all of their lives, and eventually expand outward into the growing kingdom of Jesus when he brings in these new disciples. And we're going to look at all this in a couple weeks. But that all brings us to our, our second point, which is preserving a spiritually healthy church culture. So at some point during these regular prayer meetings, the Holy Spirit, using the Bible using their discussions of the Bible, using their remembering of Jesus' own preaching, the Holy Spirit brings them to the conclusion that there needs to be one more apostle. Because right now there are 11. 11. My one big toe is up. There needs to be 12, and now I have two big toes up. Um, so Peter stands up in verse 15, and he addresses the roughly 120 disciples' presence. And he says in verse 17, that Judas was allotted a share in this ministry. In other words, we know Jesus wants there to be 12 apostles because Jesus gave Judas an official role, an official place in the church. But Peter reminds them, uh, and Peter and I share something very similar, which is we tend to remind people of things we probably don't need to remind them of. Uh, Peter reminds them that uh, Judas betrayed Jesus and thus is not qualified to hold this position anymore. Also, he's dead. <laughs> uh, the reason why all this is the way it is, Paul quotes Psalm 69, 25, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one dwell in it. In other words, he has rejected his inheritance and so now it does not get to pass to anyone else in his family. It is not his to uh, give on to his children or anyone like that. But someone needs to take his place, as he argues from Psalm 109, verse 8, because there are 12 allotments in this apostleship. There are 12 spaces that need to be filled with godly qualified men at the beginning of the church. And so the issue is there needs to be one more apostle. There needs to be 12. Who is that going to be, and how do we know who that's going to be? Well, in verses 21 to 22, Peter lays out the qualifications for the office of apostle. I'm going to read that in verse, starting in verse 21. He says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And just a few quick things here. First, when we all think of Jesus' earthly ministry, we usually only think of him having 12 disciples, right? And that's because the Gospels focus on the 12 very intensely. But the Gospels are also very clear, if you uh, just pay attention, uh, that Jesus has a lot more than 12. There are what our passage calls the women who first show up in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and these are the women who are probably responsible for funding most of Jesus' ministry during his, his uh, years of wandering as an itinerant preacher. And then there is a host of others, including many of John the Baptist's disciples who went to follow Jesus after watching him be baptized by their first teacher, John, come up out of the water, hearing the voice of God. They went and joined Jesus' disciples. And in fact, remember at one point in his ministry in Luke 10, Jesus sent out 72 disciples to preach about the kingdom of God. So there's actually a bunch of candidates 
for this particular ministry. But our question needs to be, I think, first, why is this a qualification? Why does it need to be someone who was there at the beginning? Why not someone who joined at the middle, say, after he uh, drove the demons out of, uh, of Lazarus or recalled Lazarus up from the dead? Uh, why not someone who joined at the end when he did the triumphal entry? Why does it have to be someone at the beginning? There's two reasons for that. First, and th these are important because this is why they're not apostles today. All right. So first, to be an apostle means that you could tell about your direct experience of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Your direct experience of his life, death, and resurrection. So holding the office of apostle means being an eyewitness to Jesus's earthly ministry and resurrection appearance. And this is one of the main reasons why there are not apostles today. No one here is 2,000 years old, right? No one here has traveled back in time and watched Jesus walk on the sands of Galilee. Uh, but at this point in history, that eyewitness role is deeply important as the church begins its foundational witness with the Old Testament and the eyewitness proclamation of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. So that's one reason. A second reason, uh, and this is one I've only begun to see clearly, is that the goal in picking this new 12th apostle is that he would be a person who spent three to four years, however long Jesus' earthly ministry was, being discipled personally by Jesus. You see, the apostles are not charged with simply preaching the gospel. They are not simply newscasters or writers who are giving you information and then moving on. They are also, and just as importantly, called to establish a gospel-oriented, gospel-shaped, gospel-formed culture within the church. They are called, as we've been saying, to make mature disciples who can go out and make other mature disciples. They are called to model for the family of God the way of life that Jesus himself modeled to them. Things like being devoted to prayer, what that looks like, how to do it, how to prioritize it, being devoted to the word, to the fellowship of the saints, to the care of the poor, to godly Sabbath practices, to worship, to working out in practical detail what love within the family of God and within this particular community within the family of God and in the larger world looks like. So the Bible says that the apostles were part of the foundation of the church whose calling was to carry the lessons of their discipleship into the lives of those whom Jesus is bringing into the church. Their calling was to lay a foundation of healthy, spiritually healthy life together so that it could be preserved and passed on to each generation of God's people. And that's why I think they just didn't open the door to 72 people who would have been qualified for the role. Uh, but instead, after reflecting on what was actually needed, these 120 or so disciples of Jesus, they selected just two just two of their number in verse 23, and they put forward two, 
Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. These two men could not only be, as so many of them were, eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry, but they also have the teachings of Jesus, both his words and his practices, so deeply embedded into their hearts and lives that they, like our other leaders, uh, are, are so devoted to prayer at the foundation of, our, of their lives. They're devoted to the word, to the fellowship of the saints. They're devoted to Jesus' theology of the Sabbath. Uh, they actually trust Jesus with their time and their energy and their projects and their dreams by resting every week to enjoy life, delight, and communion with God. Uh, these two men are devoted to the poor and to the outcast. They are devoted to hospitality. They're devoted to forgiveness, to working that out in real life with real people, and to loving the people Jesus has put in front of them. They are devoted to worship, and they know how to stay rooted in Christ so that they can stand against the hour of temptation. And they know how to model these practices for us and teach these practices to us. Lord, we believe one of these two men are it. So Jesus, what do you think? And then after casting lots, which kids just kind of means like drawing straws. It's an Old Testament uh, way of, of determining what God wants. Jesus calls Matthias, and he becomes the 12th apostle. And by the way, the reason they cast lots rather than voting is because unlike elders, which the Bible says are appointed by the congregation, hopefully after prayerfully trying to discern who the Lord wants to be in leadership role, Apostles are appointed by Jesus alone. And since Jesus is in heaven now, and they can't just turn and ask him, uh, they cast lots, as they did in the Old Testament, to ask him which one he wanted to choose. And as Jesus was about to bring just droves of people into the church, Jesus chose Matthias, determining that he was best equipped to preserve spiritually healthy culture and make mature disciples in a formal role. Uh, now from there, I want to move on to our final point, which is how does Jesus want all of this to affect our hearts so that we can build a spiritually healthy culture here at Grace? Because after all, we don't have apostles, but we do have leaders. Uh, we have formal leaders. You have a pastor, you have elders, you have deacons. We have informal leaders. Uh, who are they, Pastor Matt? Informal leaders don't want to have the spotlight shown on them. <laughs> but we have them. So let's reflect for a second on our leadership and our church in light of what we've just seen Jesus doing and growing and preparing as he's about to bring in a bunch of people into the congregation. I think first we need to take very seriously that this culture was established by Jesus before Pentecost. And we need to take seriously that it took him years of intense discipleship to establish it in their lives. We need to take very seriously that this way of life was intentionally practiced and nurtured in the church before Pentecost and was considered so vital of the church that Jesus selected Matthias as a leader because he was not only an eyewitness, but a mature, practicing disciple of the ways of his master. And we also need to take seriously that he was installed as a leader before Pentecost. There's an order here. There's a plan here. There's an intention here. This shows us that ideally, Jesus wants a church and their leadership to be spiritually healthy, rooted in him and in his word, living out faithful discipleship practices before he brings in lots and lots of people. 
And he does this for the same reason that we want people to be emotionally and spiritually healthy before they get married or before they have children. Because as we all know, if you're emotionally unhealthy before you get married, uh, if you respond to criticism with anger, if you have a hard time forgiving, if you have a hard time listening, if you avoid all conflict or are a people pleaser or an enabler, all of which Jesus would call a false peacemaker, if that's you when you get married, those problems don't go away when you say I do, right? They get bigger. They create new problems. If you have kids, they're going to get passed on to them in some way, shape, or form. And now that's not to say that those issues cannot be repented of and solved after you get married and after you have kids. They can, right? That's one of the reasons why we are having a marriage workshop as a congregation so that we can help ourselves and our neighbors repent of these things and, and grow in them. But it's so much harder to do it after the fact than it is before the fact. And undoing the damage that's done is a tremendous amount of work. It's better to start off healthy or at least healthier so that the relationship can be healthier and stronger right away so that good practices can be grown and strengthened together as time goes on. You can build one another up in the face starting from a nice strong foundation. The same is true of the church. It's important that as a church we have practices that promote spiritual health, that bring uh, the discipleship lessons of Jesus in the Bible out into our daily lives in real practice, individually and together, so that we are healthy spiritually. That is that we have deep abiding faith in Jesus, communion with him, a delight in his goodness, a knowledge of his faithfulness, so that when Jesus brings people to us, they can receive that same kind of health, spiritual health, from him through us. Uh, and that brings me to my second reflection, which is the importance of leaders in the New Testament, both formal leaders and informal leaders. Uh, when you look at the qualifications for an elder or a deacon uh, in Timothy and Titus, they are not called, thankfully, to be eyewitnesses to Jesus's life, um, but they are called to be men who are devoted, healthy disciples of Jesus who can teach others how to follow Christ. In the, in the uh, qualifications for eldership, when God says that elders need to be able to teach, he does not mean they need to be able to give a really good lecture. He means they need to be able to show people how to follow Jesus in your daily life. What does prayer mean? What does forgiveness mean? What does kindness mean? Generosity. What does hospitality look like? How do you handle somebody in the church who's really difficult, who has to make some, has some maturing to do? That's what elders are called to teach. My friends, it is vital for me as a pastor it's vital for our elders, it's vital for our deacons, and for those in the congregation who are looked to as informal leaders, that we all have practices of discipleship that are rooted faithfully, daily, and regularly in the word and in prayer so that we can model, coach, and encourage this kind of life of discipleship in the congregation. A culture of spiritually healthy discipleship is not something that is stumbled into. It's fostered by leadership. It's fostered by the pastor, the elders, and the deacons, and by those in the church who have an informal but nonetheless very influential role. Uh, which brings up a very interesting point, which is how do we foster this in our lives? How do we foster this as a church? 
We're going to talk about this much more in depth as our series goes, series goes on in Acts, especially when we stop in Acts 2.42 and spend in about a couple weeks and spend almost a month just kind of looking at each thing that the church devoted themselves to after they were saved into uh, Christ's communion. But to give you a short preview before we close, because I want to leave you with something you can think about a little bit more on this line, uh, what we all need is what the medieval church called a rule of life. And a rule of life is just a set of practices that we engage in each day and week and month that foster and grow our life with Jesus by keeping us rooted and grounded in him. It's a way of making all of life worship. And I think our rule of life needs to include, and mine includes, daily practices of prayer, confession, forgiveness, and Bible reading. It includes a weekly habit of Sabbath rest where we take one 24-hour period to enjoy life, delight, and communion with God, and that day would ideally be Sunday. Uh, our rule of life, I think, would also want to include, well, it doesn't want to, must include weekly corporate worship within the church and regular times of fellowship with other Christians in the church who are not members of our family, other Christians who are not related to where we can practice giving and receiving the fruit of the Spirit and the words of the Bible too. So here in our passage, you can see the prayer part of the church's rule of life. It's the daily practice that Jesus taught them so that they would have spiritual health and maturity as disciples. And as Acts goes on, I think you'll see that this part of their rule of life appears often, as well as the other things that I've mentioned. And I think those things are all there, and I mentioned them all. Because that's how Jesus worked out his worshipful communion with his heavenly father during his human life. And it's the kinds of things he drew his disciples into during his human life. And it's the kinds of things his disciples are now drawing other disciples to in their lives. Uh, so for today, let me close with this. Uh, Jesus' calling to go out and make mature disciples requires us to be maturing disciples. And we mature as we foster a spiritually healthy culture. That spiritually healthy culture needs leaders who have spiritually healthy practices. And at the core of those practices is regular communion with Jesus in prayer, individually and together. So let's devote ourselves daily, regularly, and faithfully to prayer. Let's ask Jesus to help us mature as a church so that when he adds to our number those who are being saved, please, Lord, that they can taste and see the goodness of Jesus in our lives together. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, please build up all the leaders here at Grace with growing spiritual maturity through faithful, regular times of prayer. Uh, please draw us all closer to you. And please also, through these leaders and through every member here at Grace, build up a spiritually healthy culture that is founded on consistent, faithful communion with Jesus so that as you bring in new people, we would be equipped to disciple them well and so that together we would grow more and more into the image and likeness of our Savior and come to know and delight more and more in his nearness through the gospel and spirit. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.